Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our My Racing Life and Career series. Really getting to know someone in this instance and in all the past episodes that we've done. This happens to be someone that I'm just an admitted fanboy of Alana Schur. She is all kinds of awesome senior feature editor or car and driver. You might know her work from Hot Rod Magazine. You might know her work from a lot of places. She is one of the auto and racing industry's finest reporters, journalists, authors, videographers, you name it, of the many things that I appreciate about Alana. She doesn't just sit in front of a keyboard and try and tell stories through the printed word. She gets her hands very dirty, whether it's building engines, building race cars, racing those vehicles, drag racing being one of her passions. She is someone who genuinely does more of what she chronicles with her wonderful prose than almost anybody in the sport. And so I've had a, a long affinity for her work. Fortunate to meet her, I don't know, however many years ago. But since then, honestly, I subscribe to Car and Driver magazine to read her column. One or two others, hugely appreciative of her talent. And so getting to speak with her, learn about her introduction to the world of automobiles, motor racing, her passions, the path that led her to where she is today, circuitous route we find with so many of us in this industry, covering the sport, participating in the sport, really being a, a leader in this sport. All these areas I think you might find fascinating about her. And she is someone who's constantly trying to develop more young folks like her to follow along and make sure that this industry we love is well stocked with talent. So if you don't know Alana, I hope that by the end of this, you will indeed have a better feel for what makes her so good, so unique in our space. I am jealous of her talents, uh, but I luckily plenty of years to go to aspire to be better. So let's get going. My racing life and career with Alana sure all brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com Alana, I have been a big fan of your work for a good long while, so in my ongoing quest to know more about the journalists, the reporters, and the writers that are in the world that I try and occupy as well, whether it's motor racing or straight automotive or a little bit of both, which I know happens to be uh, the line that you straddle, I figure, you know what, let's just talk because people are sick and tired of hearing about me. But tell me about you. Who are your people? Where did you grow up? Where do your people come from in the world? What was the uh, the household like? <laughs> well, okay, first I need to return some flattery because, you know, choked up to, to get compliments from you because when I first started uh, covering motorsports, which I'm sure we'll get to, um, I saw the work that you were doing and... I said, I want to be able to do that. Like, I want to have people trust me and believe in me enough that they are that open with me because um, I think you do the best work out there. So now that we're even. No, we'll stop being <laughs> silly, but thank you. Now that we're even, um, where did I come from? Uh, I grew up in Altadena, California. So that's just north of Pasadena where they have the Rose Parade for for people who aren't based in California. And um, my folks are not car people. Um, my mom 
was uh, a history major who did a lot of uh, volunteer work when I was growing up. And my dad was an engineer who worked at JPL on spacecraft. Wow. Um, so at first glance, there's no reason for me to be into racing or cars. But sometimes when I break it down, I'm like, well, dad liked to fix things and like to know how things work. And mom was into history and she attached inanimate objects. Um, so maybe that's why I want to know why people build cars and, and how they race them and what their connection is with them. I don't know. It's my guess. Some of the smartest people that I know in motor racing have parents who were educators. And I guess that might be an obvious thing as someone is doing a fine job mowing the lawn outside. Um, <laughs> but I also think of, to your point, sometimes children go in the opposite direction of parents by intent. Maybe it's completely coincidental, but I do find that there are some really sharp people in our world, especially sharp people. And many of them have a commonality of a mother or a father who was a teacher, whether it's just grade school, high school, university, something in there. I love the fact that you have this mom, super smart, dad, super smart, but in two very different disciplines. Do you recall having any ambitions on either side as a kid to follow in one of their routes? Or was that not something impressed upon you? Um. They were really good about not pressuring any of us kids to do what they did. Um, you know, they always gave us opportunities. I mean, my dad would bring home these, like, robot kits. Um, he would take me outside to look through the telescopes. I remember when, I mean, computers were really new, and I was very little. Um, so this would have been maybe early to mid-'80s. And... Um, I remember my dad taking me outside and being like, Alana, Alana, I, I'm, I'm programming the computer to talk. He's like, here, here, type it. You know, I'm going to type in hi, Alana. <laughs> and, you know, and the computer's like, bro, bro, Lulu. And he's like, okay, well, let me let's work on it a little bit. And, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I love thinking about it now, but I was not impressed at the time. So now I look back at it and I'm like, oh, man, I wonder if I would have been a good scientist. Uh, I briefly wanted to do entomology, like mm. like studying bugs, because um, I thought that I I don't know I liked it. We did I lived right up against the foothills, so we did a lot of nature stuff, uh, nature walks and hikes and things. So I've always liked all the different animals, but uh, I was I was not good at the rest of the science classes that you have to take in order to specialize in any sort of biology as a as a career. So. Uh, I went kind of the other way and I did mostly language and arts, which was more what my mom was good at. Wow. So one of the things I always find curious about folks, I would say it's probably more curiosity aimed towards women than men. I know that as a young boy with my father being a mechanic in an amateur race car driver, I was in a boy household. <laughs> I was raised to be a boy. It was okay. Sports times a thousand, just all the stereotypical things in the 1970s where you would think, Oh, 
Mr. Pruitt had a son. And he said, great, I'm going to infuse him with all the stereotypical boy things possible. What was your house like? Was there, we want to raise her in certain gender stereotypes? Or were your parents actually far more cool in saying, we're going to raise a person? Um, well, my parents were definitely hippies. I mean, not not, not like Van and Bead hippies by that time, but they were what I would call kind of like late seventies nerd hippies. Mm. So, you know, it was a lot of whole wheat bread and, um, no sugar cereals, at least for me. Uh, by the time my brother came along eight years later, it was like corn pops, no problem. But, uh, (laughs) um, so they, they, I don't, I would say they did actively think about sort of not having those stereotypes as part of what, how they brought us up. Um, which makes it funny because, and, and honestly, it's like, uh, I wish I, I could have bucked it myself, but I just naturally was, um, more, I was more girly. I mean, I liked horses and reading and arts and crafts and stuff, but I wasn't, I was never like a, a Barbie girl, uh, and neither was my sister, but we had some, you know, that they were fine. They were okay toys. And my brother, you know, immediately liked cars more than than either one of us did when we were kids. So I don't know, you know, maybe there's outside influences, but certainly later on, you know, now I'm like, I look back at my own childhood and I'm like, oh, okay, I can see this like became that and this led to this and stuff. So it's, if there is anybody out there who's raising a kid right now and is like, oh, you know, don't give up yet. It might, it might hit later. So looking at the progression for you, where do cars racing and then writing start to emerge and i don't know but i'm guessing they didn't all strike at the same time um they kind of did uh i was going to art school i was at ucla for for visual art and uh i had i had a good friend i was also playing music i was in the la kind of underground music scene and i I had a friend who uh, who was in a band who I really liked and he was into cars. So started doing road trips and stuff and we just liked road trips in general. So rent a car and like go visit people. And then he would, he had classic cars and I hadn't learned how to drive yet. So eventually I was like, I want to learn how to drive, but I have to buy a car now. I mean, I was already 20 late 20s. Uh, and so it wasn't like I could just go borrow my mom's car or something. And I'd moved out of the house. So, um, I went to buy a car and this neighbor of mine, Damien, he helped me buy one because I couldn't even test drive one, you know? (laughs) Mm. And so I bought a a 73 Plymouth Duster. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and I remember I lived in Hollywood, didn't have a garage, street parking. My my roommate used to have to move it for me for street parking because, you know, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to park. (laughs) I didn't have a driver's license. And uh, so I remember we were doing mechanical repairs on that car before I was even legally driving it. But eventually I got a driver's license. And at the same time, I was reading all these car magazines because I was trying to figure out what it was that I had just gotten myself into. I mean, it's just, I didn't know anything about it really. So I was reading car magazines. So I was starting to read a little bit about famous racers or racing that was going on. And this, the same friend who helped me buy the car, he was car, So we would watch racing um, you know, on Sundays, we'd like order pizza and watch racing all day. 
And I really liked it. I just, I was enjoying it. And then when I finally got down in Pomona, I was like, oh my God, where's this been all my life? This is so amazing. So, um, so in a way, all of that stuff happened at the same time because as I was reading the magazines, which I really liked, I was like, okay, I'm getting this. I started to think, man, that would be a cool job to just get to, to talk to people about cars and to go to races and talk about what happens at the races. It's like, it's like all the good parts of getting to be a mechanic without actually having to be talented. Uh, and so it took a long time. I started trying to write for car magazines. I started applying to car magazines around 2001, maybe. Mm. And I did not actually get published anywhere until probably 2009. Wow. Um, and I didn't get a real job at a magazine, I think until I think it was 2012 when David Freiberger um, hired me at Hot Rod. So it, it was a long, it took a long time. Nobody wanted me. Well, but persistence, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> most people would say, okay, uh, this is not the thing for me, but I'm going to try something else. <laughs> what was it during this time, Alana, where you mentioned the really cool part but there was also a mechanical interest as well. Uh, maybe tell us about the, I have to have my roommate park my car because I don't <laughs> know how to do that, which is a foundational aspect of being able to control an automobile to making videos about throwing cams or cranks or whatever <laughs> into Mopar products because that as an arc, my friend, is freaking amazing. <laughs> well, I think anybody who's ever kind of come late to something knows that there's sort of, you can sometimes have like an accelerated learning curve because, because you already you don't have to do a lot of the dumb kid stuff, right? Because you're already an, an adult coming into it and you know that you want it. And so it's easier to focus on it and to really, to really learn it. I mean, I guess in some ways I came into it with like, you know how little kids memorize dinosaurs? Mm. Like, I feel like it was a little bit of that where it was like, I want this so bad that it's the only, like, I'm just, I'm going to spend all my time thinking about it. And um, you know, one nice thing about kind of coming into it, you know, people talk a lot about how difficult it is to be a woman in motorsports and in mechanics. And that is true. There's a lot of difficulties, but there's also a lot of people who are very excited to help you and who, who are, are expecting you to not know anything. So they're willing to teach you, you know, I, I felt like I was able to come into it without having to pretend that I knew things that I didn't know, which maybe a man in the same position wouldn't have had that freedom, uh, you know, to be 25 and be like, I'm bad at driving. Can you help me? You know, mm. <laughs> um, I don't think, I don't think most guys want to want to have that conversation. So, so that was good because I was able to kind of, uh, get help from a lot of different, very knowledgeable people. And I think that I've been very lucky and maybe it's a skill too, but I've certainly been very lucky that all through my life I've been able to kind of recognize who's really good at what they're doing. And those are the people you want to have help you. You know, it doesn't really do you any good if you learn from somebody who's also not good at things. But if you can kind of 
scan a group and be like, well, that guy talks a lot and, you know, that guy's really loud, but this person over here thinks she might know what she's doing or, you know, he might know what he's doing. If you can find that person and get your help from them, it saves you a lot of time. It's the quiet ones who are always the farthest away from the cameras. It, it really <laughs> and truly is whenever I need sage advice input, hey, tell me how this new thing works. Uh, it is not the one that everyone would think of in whatever sport. Oh, that's the guy that's always on TV with the flappity mouth thing talking all the time. <laughs> it's the one who's like, nope, I am in the shadows doing my job. Keep the attention away from me. But if you want to come talk, of course, I will let you into my little world and share that thing. So I love the eye that you had for not only finding those people, Alana, but also the the humility. That's something where I think of the many regrets I've had throughout my career, both as a mechanic and engineer, now in the journalist guy thing. The majority of the things that I regret are from not having the humility to acknowledge my ignorance in something to have it explained properly for fear of being seen as uh, less than or not part of the club, etc. So that I would say is a very powerful attribute that you have. It's hard, you know, I mean, it, even for me, I can look at kind of, it's kind of like ups and downs. Like the, the less confident I am, the more I try to fake it. And then like the less I achieve during that, those time periods. Whereas when I'm feeling good and I'm able to just be like, I don't know what this is. Can you tell me about it? Um, you know, the, so it, it's not like something where you're just like, I don't have an ego and it's going to be fine. And, you know, it's like something that you're always kind of struggling with. I think everybody is. Um, and I don't know about you, but I've certainly, there's nothing I hate more than like a group interview or having someone witness me doing an interview because I feel like the best stuff I get is when I can ask questions that I know the answer to, but if I just act like I don't know the answer, then I'll sometimes get these amazing explanations from people who are much more eloquent and much smarter than I am. But then if somebody's watching me do the interview, I just feel like they're going to like, oh my God, she's so dumb. Yeah. Well, I, I abandoned that. I have abandoned that notion a good while ago. Not that long ago, but feels like long enough ago where like, I know how big of an idiot I am. And that's not said for humor or any, like truly look, I live with myself. My wife is a wonderful mirror reflecting back my idiocy. I, I embrace it. I actually kind of like it, you know, uh, being the village idiot that there are things that come with it that I enjoy, but to your point, yeah, uh, having that chance to have private conversations, always a, uh, a preference if possible. <laughs> so your immersion into the world of hot rod in hot rodding, I really enjoy because for what I read when you, when I first saw your work, it came from an angle of immense curiosity infused with passion compared to duty, right? There, <laughs> there are many writers who are amazing. 
duty bound. It is nine to five bound. It's not, oh, cool. I get to write about this thing. <laughs> Your writing had that. But there's also a third layer, often, which was action. Oh, let me go and do this thing. Let me put my hands on this thing. Let, let me fly wherever it is to witness and, you know, have an experiential aspect to this. Then, ah, consulted Wikipedia. Me write article like every other idiot. Where where was this developed, Alana? Was this something that your editors there encouraged? Was this something inside you that, that bubbled up? Because it is somewhat unique. Mm, um, I mean, certainly, I, I certainly I would like to give credit to to some of the people that I worked with, David Freiberger in particular, for you know, for being what what David said to me, which was helpful, was why is this important for the audience? You know, he said, well, you know, why is what you're doing? What like what are they going to get from it? Is it going to make them laugh? Is are they going to learn something? Is going to make them cry? Like why are you going to take their time and what are you going to, which I think is very good advice for anybody who's writing. Um, I think the, the storytelling part came, I mean, I read constantly fiction, nonfiction magazines. And so I've always loved the kind of celebrity features where somebody spends a day with a, with a person and you, you get these little details about, you know, what they, you know, what they're doing while they're sitting at brunch, you know, what do they do with their hands or, you know, what's, you know, what's on their shelves in their, in their living room. I love that kind of thing. And as far as car stuff goes, I remember, um, a Brock Yates piece and I can't remember which driver it was, uh, Bobby Allison maybe. Uh, but he went for a ride along and he went for a ride along in this NASCAR and he like climbs in and of course, there's no seat, so he's just holding onto the roll bar at 200 miles an hour, <laughs> you know, going around the track, and he writes about it, and that always stuck in my head, you know, not just because of the incredible machismo of it, which is not always something that we can do nowadays, <laughs> there are different times, but just the fact that he was willing to put himself, you know, into that position and and then recreate it for me so that I could feel like I was in that position. I, I was like, I want to do that. You know, I want to get as close as I can to experiencing this stuff so that I can tell other people what it's like. So the investment on your end in the mechanical side, the mechanical knowledge, building cars, building engines, it's another side that fascinates me because that was once a if it wasn't just a point of pride it might have even been almost an expectation that if you were going to write about cars or racing you will have been a former driver uh, an owner a manager of the team uh, a mechanic a something not removed not clean not in some form of dressed and pressed clothing but actual if you're going to write about this fairly niche thing you need to know what it's like to have genuine bleeding hands and sore <laughs> knuckles and oil infused limbs where did this aspect of your creativity 
and also i guess the hobby side as well where did that get developed knowing that admittedly if we put all of the automotive journalists and racing journalists in a room and said here is a gearbox <laughs> could you remove fifth gear for me uh not a lot of hands would go up um well that would that would go back to necessity um you know when i bought the when i bought the duster i didn't have i didn't have money for a mechanic plus it was already past the point where your average neighborhood mechanic could work on an old car without making it worse um so I had to learn some basic stuff just to keep that car running. You know, I remember, I remember pulling it up on the curb on Bronson, um, just above Santa Monica, so that we could change the starter because I didn't even have a jack or anything. Um, so, you know, stuff like that you, you just have to do. You, I bought an old car, I think, at the very tail end of when buying an old car was cheaper than buying a new car. Mm. Um, you know, and I feel sort of bad for, for kids coming up now because, you know, if you want to buy a car as your daily driver, buying a classic car is not cheaper than buying a, a newer car for you anymore, right? Like, they're, like, unless you have, like, incredible mechanical skills, then, then maybe it is. But, um, but at the time, it was. It was still cheaper to have an old car and to fix it yourself than it was to, to buy a newer one. So that's where the, the basic mechanical stuff started from and it was very specialized it was just what i needed to do to keep a 73 duster running um and then i bought a 72 challenger and i was like oh i'm gonna do an engine swap all the cool all the cool people i knew were doing engine swaps so because it was a six-cylinder car and i was like i'm gonna build a 440 for it and you know i talked to people read magazines they bought parts kind of got stuff together and I was like, I'm going to build it myself. Why not? I got a book. And I remember I had parts back from the machine shop. Everything was sitting in the living room of my, I had this little craftsman bungalow in Hollywood. Wow. And, uh, and everything was in the living room. The block was on an engine stand in the living room. And I had the book in front of me and I'm looking at the diagrams and I'm looking at the parts. I was like, oh, I might have gotten <laughs> over my head. Like, this is not, this might not be as easy as I thought it was going to be. Um, and so I, I started asking again, asking some friends like, well, what do you guys think I should do? And they all were like, Oh, you know, that guy, Tom, who goes to Bob's big boy. I used to go to the Friday night cruises. Um, and, and there was, they were like, do you know that guy, Tom, who was, as you said, one of those quiet guys. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, well, he's a, you know, he's an engine machinist, you know, um, and it, like, you know, he, he builds engines. You should ask him for help. And I didn't even like think about how you should pay people for that. Cause it was still a hobby to me. So I was like, he's going to want to do it for fun. So, you know, and I knew him a little bit and I was like, yeah, you know, like Ed said, maybe you'd help me put this engine together. And uh, he tells me now, he's like, yeah, you know, I almost said no. Cause I was like, that's a lot of work. <laughs> he's like, but then I was like, wait, there's a girl asking me to put an engine together in her living room yeah i should see where this goes uh so he came over and we put the engine together and had then had to get it out of the living room which was definitely like a ship in the bottle kind of problem where it was like oh there are stairs we didn't think that it was easy to get it in it was a lot lighter than um but 
you know, after that, we, you know, we started hanging out a lot more, doing more car stuff together, and we started dating. And he was into drag racing, so we started going to the drag races together, and he taught me how to, he let me drive his charger at the drag races. So I was pretty hooked on him after that and the racing as well. So this is the part that, for me, just starts to get fun. So your passion in automobiles adds motor racing to that component your decade-ish or so of i will not be refused i will (laughs) write my words will be seen in print um then we add in well let's do more and you start writing some great pieces additional great pieces one of them about a drag racing team entrant that decided to go to the Indy 500, uh, which I loved. And again, uh, I'm kind of bouncing around timeline a little (laughs) bit for you, but you start to do some things that are decidedly diverse. And that interests me to learn more about as well, Alana, because I mean, look, I have done a thing since I was 16 years old and I really haven't strayed out of that lane too much. It's open wheel cars it's sports cars. Uh, I've done a lot of jobs within that kind of tight hemisphere, but I haven't gone and covered ice racing. I haven't <laughs> gone over here and done, you know, uh, lawnmower racing, tractor racing. You start doing some fun stuff like Baja, hmm. <laughs> 24 hours of Le Mans. Let me write about, you know, IndyCar type stuff as well. Tell me about these various assignments that have come to you and whether they're things that were indeed brought or things that you pursued wanting to expand your horizons. Ooh, there's a lot there. Um, I mean, I think that when you, when you look at any job, but especially a, a job in, in writing or in creating, you know, you can, you can know a lot about a small amount of things and be an expert there. Um, which is a personality type that I don't have, you know, that's, that's, you know, maybe more like what you're doing where you're like, I love this and I want to know every single detail about it and I want to follow it and I want it to be, I want to be a part of it and it only, um, for me, it's, I, it's, you, you'd mentioned curiosity early, earlier. And I think that for me, it's like, a, it's that it's like, I just, I want, I want to be surprised constantly by something new so that I can maintain that energy in sharing it with somebody else. And, and I'm not a great detail person. So I think that if I did try to specialize in just one thing that I would not be great at it, I think I could do it, but I would never be spectacular. Um, but, but I am a good adventurer. Uh, I mean, physically, I like to be out doing something else. I, it's funny because I normally think of myself as somewhat cowardly, but I am very brave when it comes to like, hey, do you want to go down to Mexico and ride in a race car with a team that you have never met before, <laughs> like who doesn't know that you're coming? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I guess. So, I mean, I have this, I have this theory or this this thing that I tell myself to kind of push me to be braver, which is 
whatever happens, if you do this, that's a story. If you don't do it, there's no story to tell. Mm. So, uh, so that's sort of, it's something that I tell younger people too, when they say like, Oh, I'm like, how do you go and you do this? Or, Oh, I don't, you know, I'm worried about, you know, messing up and looking stupid or whatever. I'm like, well, I mean, playing the fool is a good story to tell. You can make people laugh at a party with it later. But if you, if your story is just like, yeah, someone invited me and I didn't go, it's that it's that I'm always looking for something new to, to learn about. But also that if we aren't looking to tell stories that aren't being told, then, then like nobody is, you know, like I feel like I owe it to people to, to find them and tell their stories. I mean, I think you did that with all of your work with Willie T. Ribs. You know, like, here's a guy who's so important, such a big part of our history and, like, says so much about, you know, about a lot of different racing culture over quite a, quite a long time and a fairly recent time. And until you started talking with him, who even knew, you know, who knew who he was except for a very small group of people? And... You know, so I think that, that that stuff is like a moral imperative to find the stories that haven't been told in a while or have never been told and, and try and share them. So one thing that I just love about your work, and I don't know if it is gender specific, Alana, or if it's just a curiosity that extends across any and all lines in reading your feature for Road and Track on Hedy Lamar. Right. This is something that I am confident I could have written that piece. I'm confident I could have done an excellent job. I'm also patently aware it would have been inferior to your story about Hetty because I walk in different shoes. They're size 13. They're a little bit oversized <laughs> and ugly, but I am, I do believe the best writers can just be chameleons, whether it is viewing through the eyes of a different gender, age, sex, sexuality, whatever. A, I don't claim to be among the best writers, but in reading your story about Hetty, not only was it brilliant and fascinating, and I, I mean, I just loved it, learning about her contributions that help us today, you know, automated driving. Good Lord, who would have thought going back to this actress and her efforts long before you and I were born, uh, such a pivotal and foundational part of that. But I also read that and realized, thank goodness we have talented women like you to tell these stories because dumb boys like me probably could not tell it in the way it needed to be told and to the, the art level that it deserves is that something that you're just your eye is trained towards uh stories of women like that or is that just one that happened to pique your interest um oh there's there's so much to talk about there um first of all i i have to give credit to zach bowman for that story idea because i knew who hedy lamar was and i did know that she had connections to to technology and invention but I didn't pitch that story. He came to me and said, hey, do you, do you know who Hetty is? Do you want to write a story about her and autonomous cars? And, uh, you know, so, so it was great that way because it, did, it came from an outside, an outside person. And it, did, it was a guy who, who thought of the idea. So, 
sometimes I think it's just, I don't know, inspiration hits different times. But that story, it did end up speaking to me hugely. But I had to fight some of my own sort of preconceived notions going in, um, which I think ended up making it a better story because for, you know, and for people who don't know, Hedy Lamarr was a a Hollywood actress during 40s and 50s, very glamorous. She escaped Europe, you know, before World War II. She was Jewish. She, um, you know, she was known as the most beautiful world woman in the world. She had a, a string of different husbands, very glamorous, but also kind of tragic. But she also was an inventor, and she developed a technology, uh, like a radio frequency skipping technology that was used for for like coding um, later after, you know, um, after she, after World War II, it was used for, for like secret transmissions and then eventually became the basis for, for Wi-Fi and like autonomous driving, everything that uses, everything that has to be sending information wirelessly without being jammed or jumbled up with some other signal. So um, it was like, it was a long, like it was a long research process because it covered so so many years. And when I went into it, I was like, "Oh man, please don't be a disappointing story. Please don't be a disappointing story." Because one thing about looking looking for the the less told stories is sometimes they're duds. You know, sometimes you go in and you're like, "Oh, this is going to be so cool! Like this woman did this really cool thing," and then it's like. Eh, she was like kind of on the side of this really cool thing. And I guess I could write about it as if she was more important than she was. But but that was not the case with Hetty, although I, I expected it to be going in. So I went in to, to the research to, and I was like, I need to be really truthful here. And if this is not the story that I want it to be, I'm, I've got to figure out a different way to tell it. But it ended up being better than than I expected it to be because it was, she was so crucial to this. And like, if you look up the patent for this stuff, her name is on it. Like, this is not like a fake thing where she's getting credit for something that, that somebody else did. Yet there are a lot of people even today who do kind of write it off and say like, oh, well, her, her partner who was a man did it, or she just overheard this at Mm. dinner parties from like smart people and she didn't do it, but she did do it. And, and so that, I think that, that, that journey of discovery as I was writing the story came across in the story. And it might've come across for anyone who did that much research into it. I, you know, I, I don't know if it's something that only I could have achieved, but, but I'm glad that I got the story. I did relate very much to, to a lot about Hetty. And, uh, and I was also really pleased because the photographer that I was partnered with on that story um, it was a young woman named Sid Cummings, and uh, uh, she's your name, Sid, on Instagram. If you want to look her up, her stuff is great. She's very funny. But so I got to, as we were doing the road trip portion, I got to talk to another woman, um, you know, somebody who's at least 15 years younger than me, if not more, and, and sort of hear some of her stories about being a woman in the automotive industry and how it's a little bit different from when I started and how some things aren't different from when I started. So it definitely, the whole story is like a tapestry of a lot of different women, wow. which I think maybe is why you're, you're getting that energy from it. Something else that jumps out, Alana, is 
your writing style. It's something that it's at least as with how it lands with me. There's great sensibilities of you brought into your work, but there's not a lot of I, 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 me, me, me. And granted, if you're writing an opinion piece, of course, it'd be strange to not have I or me in it. But in your you know, standard features and such, don't see you attempting to insert yourself in the middle of it uh, or of those items. And yet we still get a really st- strong feeling of the writer and what you happen to bring to this piece. That's different. Uh, there are, again, many pieces that I read, and they are beautifully constructed. The tales might be entertaining. It might be an amazing read that I share with folks. Can still come away saying, I have no idea who the reader is. I'm sorry, the writer is. I have no <laughs> idea what the, you know, other than being a excellent writer, you could slap any name on this, and I really wouldn't be able to tell you if it was the actual writer or not, at least for what I have received in your work without trying to overly insert yourself in any way, you, there's something there. There's some soul, there's some, some dust of something that comes through. Is that something you have worked on? Is that natural? And if so, I hate you. Um, <laughs> how does, how does a, a Lana story come together like this, where we get to feel your um. presence without it being me, me, me? Oh, gosh, what a nice thing to hear. Um, Well, I think it's a mix of things. I did not, oh, sorry about the dog. Um, I did not go to school for journalism. So I don't, I think that in terms of of how how a story is structured, I think I kind of base it more off of almost, an almost like fiction-like structure than a traditional journalism structure. I mean, I don't know because I never went to journalism school, so I don't know what people get taught in journalism school. Same here. But from, I went to school to, to learn about computers school. at 33 <laughs> yeah. or something, and my English teacher said, well, you're not the worst. I'm like, hey, hey <laughs> there's promise here. So I'm glad to hear there's two of us are kind of winging it a little bit. That that really is, that makes me feel great to know. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that you can do great stuff from going to school for it. But I also think that sometimes coming coming to anything from a slightly different side, without having um, a preconceived training on it, maybe you know, you'll have different weaknesses, but you'll also have like you know, you'll also have some really maybe some positives from it, some freshness to it. Uh, as for the the trying to keep myself from overtaking the story. I mean, that's just, that's just good editors. I've just had really, I've just been lucky. I've had really good editors and they've been, um, and they've been able to sort of gently encourage me to, you know, to not, to not make all the stories about me. Um, and, and also the stories that I like to read are, are stories like that. I mean, I, you know, I'll bring up Brock Gates again. And I'm not saying that he's a perfect example of automotive journalism. You know, he has its own, his own things that are not so great. But for me, reading Brock Gates's motorsports coverage, he knew what he was talking about. 
He participated in it. He was able to write a story about what he was doing. And he was also able to write a story about what someone else was doing and make it bigger. Like, why did it matter outside of that moment? Which, and to me, once you start really looking into what other people are doing and why it matters, there's no room for, there's no room for anything else. You know, I mean, you got a word count. I don't know about you. I am always over word count. I'm always having to cut stuff. So the first things that I cut are my own personal asides because they're the most, they're, you know, they're the least important. And so I think honestly, I would probably be one of those me, me, me ego writers if I had a bigger word count, but I just don't have room for it. Well, I've had to learn to, I've had to learn the art of negotiation on word count, Alana, and it's usually (laughs) phrased around, I know you thought this was 1500 words. And what is the most polite way I can tell you that uh, you were way off? (laughs) Which it's really, it's just a dodge to say, I couldn't figure out how to do this, the amount of words you gave me. So, but don't ever tell folks that. Um, (laughs) You should definitely edit that bit out. Oh, no, no. Do you think my clients listen to this nonsense? You're kidding me. (laughs) Um, Let's close on one or two things, Alana. So you spoke about bravery or fear, but having to recognize fear inside with pushing through and using bravery on assignments or whatever it might be that doesn't land in that immediate comfort zone for you. I want to go back to your uh, first time covering the 24 hours of Le Mans. I know you mentioned basically sleeping in your car for that. I love that for the reasons of having Covered the race many times myself. I know that fear certainly was a big part of it for me in the beginning because although I took a couple years of French in high school, by the time I went, I'd forgotten everything. So I didn't speak the language, was more or less dead broke on my first trip there. And it was just a comedy of errors and how to do everything wrong. And yet, because I had a bit of a racing background, I at least knew enough people to take pity on me you're heading there and covering this, knowing that it really has not been, you know, something that's been the bedrock of your life, a race that you've just known about since you were a child and so on. I would imagine there are all kinds of comfort zones that were lacking. And yet I believe this was a pretty cool and amazing experience for you. So I thought that might be something where if there are any young men, young women listening who want to be reporters your first journey to cover Le Mans way across the world, which is super unique and not accommodating to you or anyone if you don't speak the language. Could you share that tale? Because I bet there's a lot folks could take from it. Um, well, I think sometimes just, you know, if you're just fully stupid enough, then you can just, you can kind of glide right through things because you don't, it doesn't even occur to you to be, you know, to be ashamed or insecure about stuff. But uh, when when I started at Hot Rod Magazine, Hot Rod wasn't covering things outside of drag racing. In fact, it wasn't even covering contemporary drag racing. It just wasn't covering contemporary motorsports at all. And, you know, I'd been reading old Hot Rods and I was like, old Hot Rod, man, they, you know, they went on like the African Safari Rally and they you know, they definitely covered Le Mans and they covered IndyCar racing and all this stuff. I was like, we need to, you know, we need to look at all of this again. We need to, 
we need to do this. But because Hot Rod hadn't been covering that stuff and at the time was barely even covering new cars at all, it was sort of right when the American muscle cars were, were really coming back out a little bit before the Hellcat came out. Um, we got, you know, we had no invites. We had no PR support from anyone. So, you know, Lamar was just like, I don't even, I don't even know how I got a, a press pass. Somehow I got approved for a press pass. But, uh, you know, once I got there, it was just kind of, right. Like, <laughs> you know, let's just, let me just walk around like and, and experience it and ride the carousel and, oh, look, there's some Germans naked on top of a bus, uh, you know, like, so, you know, and it, and I did have, I didn't know anything about contemporary um, Le Mans, but, you know, I knew a lot about, you know, Dan Gurney and GT40 and, and the earlier stuff, you know, the 50s and 60s racing. So for me, it was just, I was just soaking in this feeling of, of being a part of something that was so old and so cool. And, you know, again, Look, uh, all the way through here, I've just been lucky because there have been nice people in my life who've helped me. Um, and so I ran into a friend there, uh, another journalist who who was much more experienced. And, you know, so later during during the trip, you know, he he showed me around a little bit. And um, and then I ran into Dick Winkles from Viper from FCA because mm. um, this was the first time I went was the last year Viper was racing. Um, and, uh, and I knew Dick from, from a story, a text story I'd done. And so sort of towards the end of the race, you know, he, he invited me up to watch a little bit from, from one of the Dodge booths and stuff. So it wasn't, I didn't have a, a total civilian experience. Um, but, but it started out as one and, you know, I think it's, you know, sometimes maybe not speaking, just keep trying until you get where you want to be. And, you know, and also if you get yelled at, which, I mean, I hate being yelled at. I hate it. I'm definitely like conflict averse and a people pleaser. And the hardest thing for me in motorsports coverage is how often you get yelled at for being where you're not supposed to be, mm. you know, and and some of it depends on how grouchy a crew chief is at the moment that you're in the pits, Right. Um, and so I, I think the biggest advice, and you tell me if you agree with this, but the biggest advice that I have for somebody who's trying to cover motorsports, um, and is new at it is be polite and be sensitive, but not so sensitive that you don't occasionally go where maybe you're not supposed to be, you know, I mean, obviously don't go where you're definitely not supposed to or something but if you're not sure and you can see other people doing it you can always try and you know sometimes you can sometimes you're allowed to be there I mean that was the thing was like I remember I don't remember what race I was but I was like it didn't even occur to me I was allowed with my media pass I was allowed to go to the you know into the pits and and do you know walk around or whatever but if I like no one tells you what you're allowed to do there's definitely a bit of agency that has to be taken. One thing that I learned a long time ago, and it's created some adversarial relationships or exchanges, but it's a very similar topic of PR agents, right? Mm. There's this expectation that if you want to speak to driver X, team owner X, whatever, you need to go through the PR agent. No, 
<laughs> I realize that <laughs> might be a structured formula that has worked for a long time, but ultimately I don't work for you. You aren't in my chain of command. If I have a relationship with this person, I'm going to go and speak with that person. And it's similar to access. If you ask someone, if you can do something more often than not, the first reaction is to say no or try and place you in a position where they are in a dominant role to then dictate to you. So you obviously don't walk out into a busy pit lane and get hit by a car. But at the same time, if you think you can go over there, try and go over there. If you want to interview somebody, go up and say hello person and say your thing. If you give someone control over you and your agency, most times folks are going to take it. And all of a sudden you have this really awkward thing where you've created your own limitations where you can't do something or there's a barrier in place because you have handed someone control over you and the ability to do your job. So there are situations where you have to kind of, you know, bend the knee and bow. Uh, <laughs> but I look to erase those uh, at all in every opportunity because otherwise I wouldn't get half of what I do done. And it goes same, same as you. I want to go to this area on the racetrack. Well, I see other people there and our passes kind of look the same. So I'm going to go there. And if the person <laughs> says no, I'm not just going to walk away. I'm going to say, tell me why. I had someone years ago at Long Beach, a corner worker, uh, yell at me and tell me to leave because I was wearing shorts, uh, to which I said, uh, there's no required dress code for photographers. And he got very mad and was mad that I wasn't going to leave and stalked away and came back a few minutes later with a handbook, uh, a small little handbook that I guess had been printed for... Uh, those who were really awesome folks that bought tickets to watch the motor race. So it was kind of a viewer's guide for the Long Beach Grand Prix. And in it, it said, no shorts trackside or something like that. And I just remember having this argument during the middle of a motor race of, I'm sorry, I respect the fact that you hold a position of authority in the thing that you do. Again, genuinely respect that. But you're holding up a fan guide saying this is something fans are being told, trying to dictate my ability to do my job. I'm absolutely going to stand here and fight and argue with you the entire time until you go away. Because in this instance, you're wrong. If you're right, I'd say, hey, man, my apologies, I'm out. I just happened to ask like two days before the person in charge of the whole track, hey, shorts, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up. Wearing shorts <laughs> in Long Beach, baby. So anyways, I'm with you. Those things where you go, hey, if I really don't know and I want to make sure I'm not committing a cardinal sin, of course you ask. But otherwise, yeah. sunglasses and a look of confidence and like <laughs> you only see the target you're walking towards and the rest of the world fades away. That's a pretty good bargaining tool, Lana. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that if you want to do this, you know, go in, go in with the idea that, uh, that everyone's doing a job, including you, and there's nobody who can tell you your job isn't equally important to theirs. So, um, yeah. Some Sage confidence. advice. Sage <laughs> advice. Well, let's close on this, Alana. So, you write them words for them word stories that go into the them 
interwebs and the print magazines and all kinds of fun and cool stuff. I get this every now and then, not as much as I once did, because I don't know, maybe folks aren't as interested in being motor racing reporters. Maybe sense has fallen into more people's heads. But (laughs) for you, who straddles both worlds, I would say often I see more of your work on the automotive side. What, I don't want to say advice, because it's such a general thing, but what things come to mind when you get outreaches from young men, young women wanting to be the next you or follow uh, doing what you do tomorrow or years from now, what kind of things do you share with them about being able to make this happen for them? Because frankly, we're not one of many. There aren't many of us left doing this. So I have to hope you've got some pretty, uh, pretty cool interactions you might share with young and aspiring writers and journalists. Um, I mean, I think that we've covered a lot of a lot of the things that I would say as advice. But um, read a lot, read all the time. You know, it, it soaks into you. I never took any formal writing classes past high school. I didn't even take write, writing in college. I mean, I wrote essays. Obviously, I took history and other stuff, but I didn't. I didn't take any journalism. I didn't take any creative writing. But I read. All the time, everything, cereal boxes, read everything. Um, and and then start writing. You know, I think a lot of people send stuff to me and they say, you know, and I say, well, start writing. And they're like, well, I don't have anyone to write for. I was like, have you not seen the internet? You can make a, you can make a blog, you can make a newsletter for free in 15 minutes. So just start writing there. And they're like, well, nobody's, you know, nobody's going to see it or nobody's going to look at it yet. And I'm like, doesn't matter. You still end up with a with a portfolio of things that you can then send to people. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, that's what I did. I remember, I remember being. I, w- I worked in PR before I got the uh, magazine job, and I remember talking to a journalist, and I said something like, "Oh, I've got to go." You know, I'm working on my blog or something like that, and he's like, "Oh, you write for fun? How cute!" <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> You know, but it was, it was great because it was such good practice and it was so low stakes, you know? So I don't think you should give away your work for free. For example, if a magazine that pays people normally asks you to do something for free, don't do it for free. But if you have control of something and you want to do that for free, absolutely. It's excellent practice and it's something you can send to people later when you start asking them if you can do it for them. And I think the the take home there beyond that awesome input is repetition, repetition. The the writers that you love, I love, uh, maybe aspiring journalists love. It's very rare where they can say the third time I opened a word document or <laughs> notes or whatever and put some of them typity type keyboard inputs into it. It uh, the, the Pulitzer prizes. Hell, I want a Tony. That story was so good. They just sent everything to me. It is a willingness and a passion to do the thing, but keep doing it and keep doing it. And with time, the work becomes better. Even the most talented among us, Alana, where we go, ah, 
why well, I, 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 again i hate that person why are you that good right out of the <laughs> gate that's not fair but for most of us who have to put in the reps and the time to improve there's a, a there has to be i would say a desire behind that a passion behind it that supersedes but no one's going to see it where is it going to be read when am i going to get paid for it there is that phase admittedly where you can still get paid but maybe while you're working and polishing i think there has to be a true desire to hone and improve as you get towards that place where maybe you're recognized as someone that want folks want to hire what about that just the writing for writing's sake do you where do you think that falls in in the land of needs well i think that i think that if you have, <laughs> when you have the time, writing for writing's sake is is joyous. Um, I have a newsletter which I haven't worked on recently because, luckily, I have been too busy with um, official work to to work on it. But when I do get a chance to work on it, it's really fun because it's like all the things that I have to think about if I'm writing for a different, you know, for an outlet, for Car and Driver, or for Road and Track, or for Hot Rod. All the do I need to explain this? Should I not use a swear word? Is this joke too dumb? Like I can, I can just put all that stuff in there. And, uh, and that's really, it feels good. You know, it feels good to get that stuff out. Um, I mean, if I could add one more thing to what we've been talking about, it's that, you know, once you've started doing all of this and you think you're good at it, start, start showing it to people, talk about it, share yourself. It's so hard to, you know, I think for me, I, I was like, why is no one coming to me with job offers? Me asking me if I would be, you know, the editor of this or whatever. I would like watch other people kind of move around getting different jobs at different places. And they'd be like, Oh yeah, they, you know, what? Uh, and I was like, nobody's coming to me. Nobody's headhunting me. And I finally asked a friend of mine who who does a lot of uh, like appearances, like she got, does a lot of trade show appearances, like at SEMA, like oh come see signings, whatever. And I was like, yeah, you know, do they just come to you? And she's like, oh gosh, no. Like starting in like March, I start sending out e- emails. It's like, what's at your booth? Do you want me at your booth? Like, and I was just like, what? <laughs> and she's, I was, you know, like I was, like was totally astounded because I'd been thinking of it as this sort of vanity right like oh they're going to come knocking at my door with offers but every time I've talked to someone including for example people who've won the Pulitzer Prize other people don't put you forward for that you put yourself forward you have to look at the deadlines and like submit your own stuff you know and it's the same with getting a job or you know getting a high profile gig or getting a press pass for a race like if you wait for the PR people to come and invite you to the thing, they might not. But if you send them a note ahead of time, that's like, I want to go to this. Here's what I can do. Eventually they start saying, oh, sure, that's great. We've got a spot for you. Wow. Well, there's some awesome truths being revealed there. And hopefully it's not too inside baseball, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I will raise my hand and admit to feeling myself a little bit too much a couple of years ago at a certain event that I attend that's somewhat unique. Like really I'm one of very few uh, current racing writer reporters that show up to this event. And 
I didn't bother submitting for credentials because I'm like, well, I'm here every year. I'm one of not many who show up to do this. Of course, it's going to come in the mail. And then it got to be like the day before I needed to leave and realized, oh, yeah, uh, no, it didn't <laughs> arrive, jackass. And whatever stature you thought you had, clearly your, your fan club, which is uh, a membership of one, um, no. And so you need to reach out and ask because even those who are exceptionally good or of whatever stature still have to do the thing. And they, trust me, they laid into me hard and rightfully <laughs> so. But the, the, maybe the, the earlier part to this, which is such a brilliant uh, recognition and bit of advice, Alana, is I know that I spent many years, particularly maybe the first half of the 2010s with a subset of writers and reporters in my world of motor racing, the open wheel and sports cars that just crapped on me at every opportunity. And it was on the specific topic of that guy's taking all of our jobs. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about that, and granted, they never had the balls to come and say that to me. <laughs> I hear from all my friends about these guys just chirping away constantly was Oh, he, well, he's just got to be, you know, Mr. Bottom Dollar, just gut bucket basement prices. You know, that's why he's taking all these job offers away from us. No, it was the exact opposite. And it actually kind of ties into the, well, surely they're going to send me credentials because I'm <laughs> the man. Well, funnily enough, as I was doing a lot of work for three, four different magazines or online outlets it wasn't because they sent emails or calls marshall pruitt you're like the best ever in the ever in the history of the world can we give you a bunch of money and stuff <laughs> it was me saying hey i like your thing i'd love to write for you or do videos or whatever but i would like to do the thing for you and rarely was there a yes immediately often it was weeks months in some true cases years of outreach but in every instance it was me going to them even while being a person who was a little bit known for doing what i do and so the folks who were complaining and bitching coincidentally were in that mindset of well we're pretty cool we're super established. I'm sure they're going to be fawning over us. And indeed, they weren't. Uh, indeed, it was laziness and ego uh, and a failure of recognizing, to your point, um, they might not be looking for you. So don't be the dumb one who waits. Reach out and ask them. And just as a quick sidebar, I've never mm. been cheap. So it, the jobs <laughs> haven't come because I've offered a bargain basement pricing. So what you shared i love that because it, it on both ends both the the idiocy and the the humility um i've had to work through both on my own but it's all come from a desire and an outreach not my inbox blowing up well it makes me feel good to know that uh, that you have to do it too because <laughs> i mean you know i'd have you on every every credential just as a as a get-go if oh, i was in charge don't be silly <laughs> well i know that you need to go do things that 
don't involve us talking about the somewhat abstract world world of <laughs> writing about cars in motor racing but i want you to know how much i appreciate you alana and i hope that folks just getting a chance to learn more about you will hopefully take home many of the cool pieces of advice and experiential bits you have shared <laughs> well i hope that we were uh, able to help someone and didn't didn't bore too many people and uh, it was just a delight to get to talk to you so that was my pal alana sure if you don't follow her please do at challenge her word challenge and h-e-r on twitter I believe she's on the good old Instagrams as well and plenty of other places, but at challenge her for sure is where you're going to get a lot of her best stuff plus carndriver.com. So there you go. Learn about her, appreciate her, visit the Googles and uh, definitely try and capture many, many years of her work. I think you will become as big a fan as I am if you do. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com.